This is Sheree Scott. Welcome to my podcast, Mumbai to Maine. Join me as I take a deep dive into Maine's food story, past, present, and future. This episode is part of a special series celebrating Maine's bicentennial. This bicentennial series is sponsored by Eat Maine. To celebrate Maine's bicentennial, Maine Magazine is creating a visually rich anthology commemorating the people, places, and things that have molded Maine's culture over the last 200 years. In every monthly issue, the magazine will showcase present-day Mainers, promoting and elevating our state, and shine a spotlight on the organizations and leaders that are forging Maine's path into its next century. On December 11, 2018, Melissa Kelly walked into the local theater in my hometown of Booth Bay Harbor to attend the screening of the pilot episode from my video series, Mumbai to Maine. Why this two-times James Beard Foundation Award winner chose to make the drive from Rockland on a snowy night, on her night off, will forever remain a mystery to me. But I'm so thankful she did. I've been extremely fortunate to interview Melissa at length, not once, but twice in the last six months. This past October, I was honored to host Melissa as my inaugural guest for Talking Food in Maine Intimate Conversations series at the historic Lincoln Theater in Damascata. As you can imagine, it was a packed house. I was so taken with her career, I knew I just had to have her on my podcast to share her story with everyone. During the Gospel According to Melissa Kelly episode, we had so much fun chatting about her life, we lost track of time. But I just didn't have the heart to edit out some of those awesome stories she shared with me. So instead, I felt like a sequel was in order. This is a brief but fun 10-minute interview with some engaging moments that I'm sure will captivate you, especially if you're a diehard fan of Melissa Kelly. If you've ever wondered what her signature dish is at Primo, her award-winning full-circle kitchen restaurant in Rockland, Maine, or what it was like to cook for Anthony Bourdain on his show No Reservations, take a listen. Here's a second helping of Melissa Kelly. So, Melissa, what is a signature primo dish? Well, the one dish that never comes off the menu is the pork salt and boca. And it's a dish that I used to make for primo when I I lived with him for a short amount of time. And he was very particular. He loved to eat. And he, he would challenge me in the kitchen all the time. I would be making sauce and all day making a tomato sauce and he would come in and dump a bottle of wine in it. And I'd say, what did you do? And he's like, it wasn't right. You needed the wine. You needed the wine. So we were always arguing in the kitchen. But the one thing that I made perfectly in his eyes was the salt and boca. So he had a, like a quadruple bypass and he wasn't really supposed to, he, they gave him a special diet and he took the diet when he came home and he said, look at this, look what they want me to do. And I said, okay, we're going to get the heart association cookbook and I'm going to cook for you out of that. So I started doing that and I found a salt and boca made with pork and uh, made with veal actually for him. Cause veal was like leaner. And, um, so he was supposed to eat like, just like veal scallopini. So that was the only way I could get him to eat it. And he loved it. 
So tell us what what is salt and bocca? What is the dish composed of? So salt and bocca uh, literally in Italian means jump in the mouth. So it's just like a big burst of flavor. Um, mine's not exactly traditional, but how I make it is we use a pork scallopini. So very thinly pounded out pork cutlet, lightly dredged in flour and seared, crispy on one side and quickly on the second side. And then we take the pork bones and make a natural jus with uh, Madeira wine. So it has a little sweetness to it and lots of fresh sage. Mm. And then the salt and bocca itself is finished with uh, mushrooms and it's plated with uh, a roasted garlic mashed potato, uh, sauteed spinach, very thinly sliced prosciutto, and then crispy fried sage on top. Ooh, that sounds divine. And of course, all the pork's coming from your backyard. Yes. And the charcuterie, the mm-hmm. prosciutto is also yes, yours. All. So, I mean, the entire thing is main made start to finish. Yeah, it uses Incredible. spinach and the sage all comes from the garden, main potatoes. So it's a it's 100% main dish, but it's also like a warm hug kind of dish. It's, it's something that uh, I have regular customers who come and they want to see what's new on the menu. But then if they're having a day where they're not feeling so good or, or they just... They just want that warm hug. They get the salt and boca. Salties. We call it the salty. The salty hug. (laughs) In this next segment, I asked Melissa to share some examples of the tough love she endured as a student at the Culinary Institute of America almost three decades ago. Following that conversation, we segue into her once-in-a-lifetime experience cooking for Anthony Bourdain and what it felt like to be featured on his show, No Reservations. So I know you mentioned, you know, talking about the CIA, um, you know, that some of the guys at the CIA weren't very nice to you or nice to be around. Do you have any vivid examples that you can remember after all these years and and how you sort of felt? Yeah, well, this was like definitely pre the Me Too. People didn't really... um you didn't complain about your superiors. You just were petrified, basically. Before you got into a class, some of the chefs had these fierce reputations that they would be throwing pans at you if you made a mistake or, you know, throw your plate on the floor or burn you with a pan. And actually, I did work in one of the classes at the culinary. It was our banquet class. And we had like a double stack convection oven. One was really high. And every day, this chef was so mean. He was an older... Um, I think it was French and we had to make family meal and we had like a sheet tray of chicken up on the top convection oven and it had, we didn't put it on a rack, but we didn't know. And he didn't tell us at the time, you know, we, we made a mistake in the class and he made us come over to the top oven and he opened the oven and he was splashing the fat like in our face to show us that we made a mistake uh, instead of teaching us or telling us the right thing to do. Oh my goodness. And like he would like dump stock on someone, not hot, but like cold stock if you made a mistake. And just like those things were actually okay back then. Not that it was okay, but he didn't get in trouble uh, as a teacher in the school. And there were chefs that would scream and throw you out of class and their discipline was very different than anything you could get away with today. I mean, I think if anyone did that today, they would end up in jail. You know what I find most remarkable about this story you're telling me is that when I was in your kitchen with seven divas and each diva had their own chef, like you had, you know, everyone assigned so they had someone to help. And on top of that, you had your entire team coming in the back doing dinner service. I mean, you could hear a pin drop. 
So it's just interesting to me that you learned in that environment, but yet you didn't replicate it when you created your own kitchen yeah, I, um, and your own restaurant. I feel like as a young chef, when you're not very confident, you're more apt to be uh, like a screamer. But as you get confident in your own ability and you and prioritizing what can happen in an evening. A lot of things are going to go wrong in a regular service. Um, one of your cooks is going to come in late. One of them's going to come in hungover. Um, one of them's not up to speed or someone's sick and you have a new person on a station. So you have to choose your battles on what's going to be the most important thing to, to, um, to focus on, to make sure that service goes out smoothly and that the guest doesn't know that all those things have happened in your kitchen today. So um, you prioritize and with confidence after you've been doing it for 30 years, you can let certain things roll off your back. And that's a lesson that I was trying to teach my young sous chef um, because he would fly off the handle and get very, you know, he would listen to me complain about technique on, you know, we need to work with this cook, his technique's too slow, or he's not particular, or he's, his knife isn't sharp, and he doesn't have good knife skills. And then he would just fly off the handle instead of teaching him. I'm like, you have to teach him how to sharpen his knife or how to cut the vegetables properly and, and mentor him instead of just getting mad at him. So I think that comes with confidence and with age. <laughs> hate to say it. <laughs> you know what? We never talked about this. And, and I just thought of it because you were, um, you were selected to be on the No Reservation Anthony Bourdain show as one of the featured in Maine. Um, what was that experience like for you and your team to cook for Anthony Bourdain and the whole crew? Oh my gosh, it was so exciting and scary all at the same time. It was our last weekend of the season that they decided to come. So it was the dead of winter and we're always busy on our last weekend that we're open because all of our regulars know this is the last chance. We're going to be closed for four months. We right. can't come until May. So it's a January night and uh, they arrived and I did a podcast with, with Anthony Bourdain in the dining room and he was like, do you need a drink? <laughs> and I was like, no, do you? <laughs> so he made me have a drink with him, uh, which was fun. That's and hilarious. He, he wanted me to loosen up because mm -hmm. he knew I was nervous. And um, we did a podcast. It was great. I mean, it was very matter of fact, very jovial, friendly, made a lot of jokes and and made me feel comfortable really quickly. Um, but then, you know, to cook for him is scary. The, he's traveled all over the world and you want to make sure everything's perfect. And they wanted me to cook for him, but then sit at the table and eat with him also. So I would be running downstairs and making a dish and then run upstairs and tell him about the dish and sit with him. And he would ask questions. And, and I, I remember one moment where I ran down to the kitchen and we had been serving some fritters in a martini glass and I hit the martini glass with my elbow and I cut my finger. So I was bleeding. Oh, no. <laughs> so then I was like running upstairs to talk to him. I'm sitting on my hand, bleeding on the chair while I'm being interviewed by Anthony Bourdain. <laughs> it was chaos. But um, in the end, we did a great show. And then the next day we took him um, to a friend of mine has a sail loft and they do um boat races on J24 sailboats. So they went sailing and then we cooked a big soup on the wood stove and his crew was great. He was phenomenal. I mean, just like a lovely person and really fun. And, and yeah, we had a great time and it was huge for Primo. I mean, it was oh, such, I, I mean, people to this day still come in and say, I saw you on Anthony Bourdain. I've been trying to come here for 15 years or whatever. Wow. What did you end up cooking for him? 
Um, well, he tasted a lot of charcuterie. He was very into that. Um, we made a few pastas. I believe I made a foie gras dish for him because he loves mm. foie gras. And then um, the next day we made a giant pot of bread and fish soup, is what, which is one of my favorite soups that I make at the restaurant. It's on the menu quite often. And I knew it was a really cold day and he fell off the boat. And so <laughs> he fell off the boat. <laughs> they tipped the boat that he was on. They were all in on wet- purpose. No, it oh. was it wasn't on purpose, but um, uh, they were in wetsuits. So it was fine, oh, okay. but they were cold. So I wanted to make like like a big bowl of comfort food and that mm. bread and fish soup is perfect. Well, I'm so glad you had that experience with him. That was amazing. Special thanks to my guest, Melissa Kelly. On my next podcast, be sure to have a cup of coffee on hand because we're talking donuts, but not just any donuts. I'm excited to chat with Maine's donut queen, Lee Kellis, the founder of The Holy Donut. Be sure to hit that subscribe button. The audio and music for this podcast was produced by G3Logic Media Design.